You're listening to Illini Life Audio, messages from a community of Christian believers on the campus of University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. For more audio and video content, visit IlliniLife.org. Good morning. Is it man? <clears throat> okay. Fun fact, I can't hear hardly anything these days. So, uh, Good morning, Alani Life. It's a, I'm excited to be uh, with you teaching again. Uh, it's been a minute since I've been up here. Uh, that's in relation to what I just referenced, my hearing. If you didn't know, uh, during that first snowstorm we got about three weeks ago, I went outside to shovel, and I came back in, and I basically couldn't hear anything. Uh, I had lost my hearing. It turns out I'd been developing ear infections on both sides from a respiratory virus I'd been fighting, and going outside to shovel, the cold, the exertion caused a blood vessel to rupture in my left ear. I lost my hearing on my left side and almost all of my hearing on my right side. Uh, it's been a, a slow prog- process of, of that hearing coming back, but I still can't hear a lot on my right side. So if you're talking to me from this side and I'm not acknowledging, I'm not ignoring you. <laughs> I just can't hear you. So. Keep that in mind in small groups and breaking bread times. Um, well, uh, that's enough about me. Uh, let's talk about you guys. I want to talk about you. I want to talk about God. But here, let's talk about you first. I have a hypothesis. I have a hypothesis that there are two types of people in the world. There are those that peek at the end of a book to decide if it's worth reading before they read it. And there are those that just read it and let it unfold naturally. So show of hands, are you an end-of-the-book peeker? Are you someone who does this? I feel like a few of you are raising your hands. If my wife was in here, she would be doing that because she cheats this way too. I mean, she does this. <laughs> the rest of us, we are good rule followers, right? We just, we just kind of read and let it unfold naturally. Uh, of, of course, I'm, I'm joking, right? I'm not, it's not right or wrong way to read a book. I mean, enjoy, enjoy reading. <laughs> um, But the point I want to make here is that the passage we're studying today is a peek at the end of the story. It's the end of the ultimate story God has been telling since the beginning of creation. You know, in several places, the Bible does this for us. It gives us a peek at the end. And God does this for a very specific reason. You might be thinking the book of Revelation. This is the clear standout point when we talk about this. God does this for a specific reason. He does it to offer us hope. So maybe all of us that didn't raise our hands, maybe we're the ones that are wrong and we could take a, take a lesson from those godly story end peekers in, among us, right? Uh, I, I tease. It's a, it's a silly way to think about it, but it's, it's what's going on. It's what's happening in our passage. This morning, we're wrapping up the Old Testament book of Daniel. That's what we've been studying these past six weeks. Uh, but you may notice this is not the last chapter in Daniel, right? You may be puzzled why we're stopping here. Why are we wrapping up here, Nick? Well, that's a good question, and I'm glad you asked it. I hope I can answer that for you. This is a transition point in the book. It's a natural shift that happens here. Remember, the, the chapters so far that we've studied, these first uh, five weeks, these first six chapters, they're all the narratives of the, hist- the, the historical narratives, the earthly kingdoms and rulers over Daniel and the exiles from, from Israel, right? And then, and then it shifts, and the, the later half of the book is, is the visions Daniel has before the Lord. 
So the first half is Daniel and the kings, mostly, and then the second half is Daniel and his visions with God. Now, you may recall from the opening of this, of this series, I, I shared with you that this book is written in two languages. That's a great Bible trivia thing, trips people up, Old Testament. It's written in Hebrew, and it's written in Aramaic. Hebrew was the language of the Israelites, right? Remember? And Aramaic is the common language of the land. It's, it's accessible to all of Babylon, essentially. And this, chapter 7, is the final chapter in Aramaic. From here, it's going to shift and be Hebrew for the rest of the book. So Daniel 1 through 7, where we focused, is a literary unit in that way. It's Aramaic. It's accessible to all those in Babylon. And in that, in that way, it's not just a message for God's people. It's a message for all of Babylon. All can, can, uh, can get at the message. The, uh, the, mess, the, the remaining rest of the book is still a pertinent message. It's a consistent message, but it's, it's a little bit less accessible to, to those that aren't of Hebrew descent. The message throughout, the Hebrew section, the Aramaic sections, all of it, the narratives, the visions, it's all the same. God is in control. It's all about God's sovereignty, this whole book. God is in control over and over again. That's what we've been seeing in these stories. Each week, that's been the, the underlying uh, truth to all the messages. We're reminded of God's power and that God will prevail when it looks like all is lost. The earthly kingdoms, the rulers of Babylon, of Persia, the Medes, and all others throughout history are going to come and go, but God will remain constant. God's kingdom is everlasting. He will reign forever. That's the heart of the book of Daniel, and that's what we're going to see again this morning as we study chapter 7. You know, as you, as you studied this in your small groups this week or, or maybe on your own, you may, you may have noticed some similarities to chapter 2 of Daniel. In fact, chapter 7 and chapter 2 are mirrors of each other. They're sort of parallel revelations from God. In chapter 2, we saw Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and it's a view of the future from a human perspective offered to the king. And here, in chapter 7, we have a vision Daniel has, a dream Daniel has, and it's a vision of the future from God's perspective. Human perspective, God perspective. That's what's going on in these bookends. And see, these, these, both these revelations, they, they, they show us that four dominant kingdoms will rise and fall before the inauguration of God's kingdom. In chapter 2, that was represented by different segments of a statue, if you remember. And in this chapter, it's going to be different beasts come up out of the water. Ultimately, all of them will be replaced by the kingdom of God. Now, I mentioned, right, we teased the fact that this is a peak at the end of the story, a peak at the end of history. The, pre- the previous chapters, they've been historic narratives, stories of history, but this chapter, it's a recording of Daniel's vision that he receives from God about the future, how it's going to unfold, what's coming. And the term for that is apocalyptic literature, apocalyptic vision. The book of Revelation, as I already mentioned, that's this type. It's probably the most well-known in Scripture that that fits this genre. And it's important to know about genre because it helps us understand what's going on. It gives us handholds in how to read and interpret, right? This is why you read poetry different than you read the newspaper. They're different genres, right? Same thing's true in Scripture. It also keys in that there's a shift. There's a shift happening, and that draws our attention, helps us understand so we have to know a little bit about this genre to grasp at the truth of what's going on here. 
Here's real briefly, here's your summary. Apocalyptic literature is crisis literature. What do I mean by that? I mean, it's the story of the end times. It's how we get there, how it unfolds, and how it all ends. It offers a specific message to a particular group of people facing dire circumstances. It announces the end in ways that, uh, that provide an alternative view of, of what could happen as God intervenes and changes our circumstances. In the Bible, this genre always, it always gives encouragement to those that are oppressed. It warns the oppressors of the coming judgment. And it's a call to those that are wavering their faith to return to God, the one who ultimately wins. Now, it does all of this through highly symbolic language, right? You probably have seen this in your study this week. Grandiose images, fantastical stories, beasts slain, clouds and chariots and fire. Now, because of all that, because of symbolic language and these images and um, individuals, they, we can easily get caught up in, in trying to decipher each reference and assign meaning and, and find out what all this is to decode it, right? We create charts and calendars and ways to decode the future so we can predict and know exactly when it's going to happen. And, and, and some of that work, it's, it's useful, it's good, because these images, these symbols, they all represent real times, places, and events that will happen or have happened. The problem is, is, is we can start to lose sight of what the purpose is. The purpose, the purpose of this vision is to give hope to people in crisis, not to give us a map for the future, right? Keep that in mind as you study this, as we study this chapter. So what I want us to wrestle with then is how does Daniel 7 give us hope? How does Daniel chapter 7 offer hope to a people in chaos, in crisis? How did it give hope? If, we st- if you study this passage this week, right, you probably get the chaos part, right? It felt chaotic. It feels out there, right? It's strange. Daniel's vision is just, it's just confusing. But where do we find hope? Where's hope in this? How does this give hope to people in exile, right? Israel and Babylon, how does this offer them hope? How does it give us hope today? Because it does. To answer that question, let's look at our passage. And, and I propose to you it comes in four distinct scenes, right? Very similar to chapter, chapter 2. It came in different four scenes. Now, a good Bible translation, it'll help you see that structure, the four scenes in this, because it shifts from narrative discourse to poetry and back and forth. And so it helps give you the handholds. Um, in case you didn't realize, this chapter is also very symmetric, which is another key to the different scenes. Verses 1 through 14 show, uh, reveal the vision that Daniel has. And then verses 15 through 28 offer the interpretation of that vision. It's a very symmetric chapter in that regard. It's not often that you get the interpretation right along with the, with the apocalyptic vision. So let's read and see our passage. Let's dive into it. The chapter opens with a reference to the time. It puts a date and place in where this is happening, right? And then it jumps right into it, and we meet the four beasts. The first scene is all about these beasts. So let's read. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, 
I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of earth were stirring up the great sea. And the four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, the wings were plucked, and it was lifted from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear, was raised up on, it was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this, I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the other beasts that were before it. It had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little horn, before which three of the first were plucked up by the roots. And behold, this horn had eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. Well, since that's super clear, we can just end right here, right? There's the end, right? I seize beasts, plucked wings, multiple heads, a bunch of horns, one with eyes and a mouth that's talking. Sounds like a dream my four-year-old tells me, right? A nightmare. Uh, it's chaos. Terrifying. If you're confused, you're in good company. Daniel was too as we're going to later see. He needed to ask for interpretation. He could not fathom what this all meant. There's a lot going on here, so let's take, let's, let's take a look at it. Here's some, some background that, that's helpful for you to know, right? This is some helpful pieces of information to see how an Israelite would have seen these things or understood these, how Daniel would have been receiving this imagery. First, the beasts are emerging from the stirring great seas. The sea, especially the chaotic seas in the Bible, is a symbol of of chaos, disorder, of hostility towards God. This indicates that these beasts are evil. They stand against God. They stand for disorder. Next, the beasts. They're grotesque. They're misshapen. They're hybrid creatures. This again hints at their evil nature. See, God created creatures according to their own kinds, not hybrids. He, dec- he, he, he created according to their own kinds, and he declared it was good. Right? These are not what God created and declared good. Lastly, these, the revealing of these beasts, right? It indicates a, a succession, a passing of time, First, second, third, fourth. And, and we're told that they're allowed to hold dominion over the earth during this time. They represent earthly kingdoms that will arise and rule. 
A good indicator of this is the first beast. Probably was recognizable to Daniel, that symbol. It's a hybrid lion and eagle. Both of these animals were spoken of by Jeremiah and Ezekiel in reference to Nebuchadnezzar. Other Old Testament prophets characterized Nebuchadnezzar as a lion and an eagle. These were animals that were known to be associated with Babylon. And actually, archaeology shows us that as the gates that the the, uh, Israelite exiles would have walked past as they come into, long processionally would have walked past as they come into Babylon, there were these golden, uh, ornate uh, images of of lions with eagle's wings against blue uh, tiled backgrounds. You can find these on the internet. um, There's one up in the Oriental Institute in Chicago, at the University of Chicago. They're terrifying. They're huge. The winged lion was a symbol of Babylon. It represented their power, their strength. They had statues everywhere. The winged lion is clearly a representation of Babylon. History shows, archaeology shows us that, as well as scripture. And if that's not convincing enough for you, that what happens to the first beast? It sounds very familiar from our previous study. The first beast is humbled as its wings are plucked. And then it's raised up and its mind is, and a mind is given to it. This is very parallel to what we saw in chapter 4, where Nebuchadnezzar loses his mind, eats grass like an ox, and God restores him and gives him back his mind. It's God's perspective of what happens there. The key takeaway for scene 1, what, what we're supposed to get grasp from scene 1 is these beasts are evil. Daniel is terrified by them. We likely would have been too, right? This is not a nightmare I would wish on anyone. Now, there's three more beasts, and I'm sure many more questions. So let's keep reading and see what happens in our next scene. Daniel's vision, it continues, but the scene shifts. The focus moves from the beasts coming out of the chaotic waters to the throne of God. Let's read and see what it says. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and his hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. His wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. The thrones are set. The Ancient of Days, that takes his seat. Described as white as snow, pure wool, fiery flames. All in contrast to the beasts who came out of the waters, deformed, impure, evil. The Ancient of Days on his throne. This is God. This is the throne of God. It's the scene of the final judgment. A court with 10,000 times 10,000 gathered before the Lord, it said. Which is, which is just a way of saying the biggest number imaginable, right? At this time, 10,000 was the biggest number they had a, a word for. So saying 10,000 times 10,000 is like saying infinity times infinity, right? Like it's the biggest number you can imagine. It's an unimaginable multitude gathered before the Lord at the final judgment. And with God on the throne... A multitude gathered, he opens the books to begin the final judgment. And the books is a reference in Scripture to God's memory of all who have ever lived in their actions. 
You can look at Revelation 20:12 as a parallel for this vision, the final judgment, God opening the books. If you want to study that on your own. <clears throat> Yet the judgment, it's not about all creation. It focuses on the strange little horn that speaks, the arrogant horn, the blaspheming horn atop the head of the fourth beast. Let's read and see what happens. I looked then because of the sound of great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to the burning fire. As, as for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away and their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Like that? <laughs> Daniel's attention, it's drawn to the little, the little horn, right? The little horn that's speaking boastfully, arrogantly, speaking great things. It thought much of itself despite its miniature stature. It thought little of God. At the final judgment, it swiftly is destroyed and cast into the fire along with the rest of the beasts, right? He's gone. He's done. Goodbye. Little horn, you're over with, right? Just like that. I feel like there's probably cheers from the great multitude. I mean, I would have been cheering if I was there, right? Like terrifying horn and beast. Well, not only that, right? We're told the remaining three beasts, they're stripped of their dominion of the earth and the the magnitude of God's power, it just stands out here, right? Like it, it does to me, it leaps off the page here. Verse after verse described this terrifying fourth beast. Daniel is consumed with what is going on here, right? The little horn, it speaks great haughty words, arrogant, blasphemes God. But in a matter of half a verse, it's killed and thrown into the fire with the rest of the beast. Done with, dis- discarded. That is the God we serve. The God who, by speaking a word, destroys evil, gets rid of it. The God we serve is so powerful, the powers of evil stand trembling, awaiting their final judgment, their final fate. That's the God we serve. His power is on display here. Let's continue on our passage and meet a new figure that comes in this scene. One coming on clouds that's like a man. We read, pick up in verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, that's God, right? And was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And so one like a son of man comes with the clouds of heaven and approaches the Lord. The Lord gives him an everlasting dominion over the earth. All nations, peoples, and languages, everyone will bow to him. Everyone will be under his dominion. Notice how this figure this ref, is, is referenced as coming on the clouds, a connection to heaven, right? In contrast with the beasts who came up from the sea and were evil. This figure is, is like a human being, like God's intended design for creation, his special creation. Contrast that with the beasts, right, that are hybrids. They're, they're not orderly. They're, they're evil. They're against creation, this, divi- this figure is divine. He's connected to God. Yet, he's like a human being. 
He's given reign over all the earth. Starts to sound familiar, huh? This is Jesus. Jesus coming on the clouds. And Jesus, he specifically identifies himself as this figure, right? As the Son of Man. He makes clear connection to this passage and says, that's me. In Mark's gospel, read it. Over a dozen times, Jesus refers to himself as this figure, the Son of Man. Often, nearly directly quoting this passage. Telling him how the Son of Man will be coming on the clouds in power and glory. This is Jesus. In Matthew's gospel, in the Great Commission, after his resurrection, what does Jesus say? He says, all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. Dominion, everything has been given to him after the resurrection. Just like we just read in this passage. Just like Daniel saw in his vision. The key takeaway from scene two is Jesus is the Son of Man, the one that destroys the evil beasts and reigns forever. Jesus is the one Daniel saw, the one that will have everlasting dominion on earth. His reign has begun, and we await the final judgment when it will be completed and brought in fullness. See, we benefit from hindsight, from Jesus making, uh, helping us know, seeing him as, as this figure, making it known to us. For Daniel, this was, was, was quite confusing. This beast, the horn, the son of man, it all alarmed him. He wasn't sure what it meant. So he needed help and he asked for help. He asked for an interpretation. Let's keep reading and see what Daniel gets as he asks for an interpretation, what the response he gets. Picking up in verse 15. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious And the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all of this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. Very short summary, right? Like many of us, right? Daniel was confused. He wasn't sure what to make of all this, right? So he asked for, for someone to help him, give him an explanation. I'm sure he's wondering, what am I supposed to do with this, right? What's this all mean? When is it going to happen? What, what, like, what, am I going to endure this? Will I see this? How will this unfold? I'm sure there's a number of questions running through his head. So he leans in and he asks for, for explanation. But did you pick up on it? Confusion wasn't the only thing he was feeling. He told us he was alarmed, he was startled, he's terrified about what he has seen. These beasts, they are clearly evil. Especially this fourth beast. The fourth beast is very concerning. The explanation he receives, it's brief, and, and the fourth beast doesn't really get much explanation. We're just told there are four kings or kingdoms that are going to arise from the earth, and ultimately God's going to wipe them out. God will reign. It's true. It's very comforting. God's kingdom will come. It will be given to his people and he'll replace all these former rulers and and God will reign forever. Now, the identity of these four kingdoms has been a topic of a lot of scholarship, a lot of study. A lot of books have been written on this. Daniel 7 is probably one of the most written about chapters, well, definitely in this book, maybe in the Old Testament, but 
there's a lot of, there's one very fitting explanation, probably the most well-received within scholarship, especially among uh, Orthodox believing uh, Christians. The explanation is that the first beast represents the Babylonian Empire, for reasons we already, we already saw, the obvious connection to their symbols and, uh, and Nebuchadnezzar. The second beast is the Medo-Persian Empire, right? The, the ravenous bear with its lopsided shoulders, it mirrors this empire. You had the, the weaker side of the Medes and the higher, stronger side of the Persians. This kingdom, it was war-hungry, and it pushed its boundaries outward, consuming more and more nations until it was the largest empire known in history up until that point. The third beast is the Greek Empire under Alexander the Great. The leopard, it's the, this beast is the, the leopard, the fastest of land animals, right? Given four wings to make it even faster as it travels. And this is consistent with what history tells us, right? Alexander the Great conquered the known world in incredible speed. His conquest reached the ends of the known world in just 10 years. And legend has it that he sat down and wept at the end of his conquest because there was no more land to take, right? Um, The fast beast, Alexander the Great, the Greek Empire, the third beast. Now the fourth beast, the fourth beast is the Roman Empire. Unlike anything the world had seen until this point, Roman legions marched across the world, breaking in pieces what was left of the Greek Empire, forcing regions in Asia, Africa, Europe to submit to Caesar. Back in Rome, power was held. Rome had, had power and longevity unlike anything the world had ever known. Nations were crushed under the iron boot of the Roman legions. Its power was virtually irresistible, unstoppable. And the extent of its influence surpassed the other preceding kingdoms vastly. Its reign was long. Its impact felt widely throughout history. Now see, the, the precision with which these, these beasts match these other these kingdoms and these empires is, is incredible. It, it, it's a fascinating study. And because of that, how, how precisely they match, some scholars, they, they conclude that Daniel's vision just could not have taken place. This was written after the fact to match history. And, and unfortunately, this shows their bias because their, their, their starting point is the miraculous can't happen, God doesn't exist, so this must have happened this way. They betray themselves in that. They're not true scholars. It's not true scholarship. They also failed to, to handle any of the, the forthcoming stuff Jesus foretold in this. What the New Testament connects back. What's already unfolded. See, we know this book was written prior to Jesus, so that all this stuff about the Son of Man that comes about, it, it predated Jesus. It wasn't written after him. Anyways, it's a, it's a, a tangent. Um, I get passionate about that kind of stuff. <laughs> this book, it's a vision God gave Daniel before the end. And it unfolded just as God said. That's the point I want you to see. History matched what God said it would. And it will continue on in the same way, in the ways. <clears throat> see, God knew how history would be unfolding. And he revealed it to Daniel. And then he went further and revealed about the coming man and the, the son of man and the final judgment. He revealed, just like he revealed that a stone cut from no human hand would crush Nebuchadnezzar's statue, right? In, in that dream in chapter 2. <clears throat> so God revealed that these kingdoms would be destroyed, that the beast would be cast into the fire. 
ultimately, Jesus would replace all of them and reign as king. The key takeaway from scene three is God is the one who removes the earthly kingdoms and uh, makes way for his true kingdom. God's kingdom is the kingdom without end where Jesus will reign and those that remain faithful will reign with him. While the interpretation of the beast helps clarify at least those kingdoms, who they are, the ultimate de- uh, in their ultimate demise, Daniel, and I imagine us too, probably still have some questions, right? This horn in particular, there's still a lot of things going on here we're still puzzled about. The final scene focuses on, on that. Daniel's still puzzled, specifically puzzled about the little horn with the eyes and a mouth that speaks, the most unsettling part of this vision. So let's see what it says. Picking up in verse 19. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. And about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up before in which the three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things, and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Daniel, still with a lot of questions, as we've read, uh, approaches uh, and wants further clarify, wants to know, desire the truth to know about this fourth beast, Right? And as we read, we, we learn more about this little horn, more about what's going on, more about what's concerning him. Not only has this little horn been speaking, it's speaking with arrogance. It's making war on God's people, oppressing them, ruling over them. Understandably, this deeply concerns Daniel. The strangeness of the horn is one thing, right? Eyes and a, and a mouth. But now we see that it's attacking God's people. That gives us concern. Persecuting them. And this, this we're told, will go on until the final judgment when God eliminates it for good. Again, Daniel needs help understanding. So, he, so an interpretation is offered. Let's read the final section of our passage. Thus he said, this is the explanation, as the fourth beast there shall be, as, the, as for the fourth beast, There shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them, and he shall be different from the former ones, and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High. He shall wear out the saints of the Most High. He shall think to change the times and the law, and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away and be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. So the, this fourth beast with its 
all its horns and its blaspheming little horn. It's, it's different than the other beasts. We've already seen that it's, it's initially, at least initially, it represents the Roman Empire, yet there's something else going on, right? The ten horns and, the, and this little horn. From this fourth beast, ten kingdoms shall arise, we're told. Now, the use of ten here is it's less about precision, right? And it's more about what it represents. Ten is the number of fullness. That it means that many kingdoms will arise, is, is another translation. It's like saying many kingdoms are going to come out of this beast when it falls or, or passes. All of these kingdoms will be lesser kingdoms. None will reach the worldwide dominion of their predecessors. Right? Nothing reached the worldwide dominion of Rome. After Rome, the kingdom of God is the only true worldwide kingdom. At the birth of Jesus, the process of dismantling other powers and worldwide kingdoms began, and that work continues until the kingdom of God will be the only kingdom that stands, only kingdom that remains. And so what about this little horn? The one that uproots several others and asserts its reign. This figure, it speaks against God. It wages war on the people of God. It rules over them. This, this is who John in the New Testament calls the Antichrist. In 1 John, he writes that the spirit of the Antichrist is already in the world and many Antichrists have already come. Those that deny God the Father and God the Son are Antichrists. Those that persecute believers are Antichrists. Those that speak against God are Antichrists. Yet, Yet one is coming who will unleash war and blaspheme God like we have yet to see, like history has not known. Paul calls him the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians, another apocalyptic vision. There, Paul says, you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and, do, and so be saved. Paul understood, John understood what was revealed by Daniel. The little horn is the great blasphemer, the, the man of lawlessness, the antichrist that comes from Satan to deceive, lie, and lead people to their spiritual death. Death apart from God. Yet, yet his wickedness, his torment, it will only be allowed for a time. It's at a time, times and half a time, a limited time. His reign will end abruptly as the eternal word of God speaks to slay him. Which is just incredible to think about. Think about the power of the Lord. How powerful is God that he needs only to speak and it is done. It's exactly what we see in creation, in the creation narrative, right? God speaks and it's done. God speaks and he is undone. 
This little horn that thinks much of itself and uses many words. With the breath of a word, Jesus slays him. And it's the end. He's annihilated simply by Jesus speaking. The key takeaway from scene four is that Jesus annihilates evil. The Antichrist will eliminate, will be eliminated, and Jesus will reign forever. The man of lawlessness will perish, and Jesus will reign forever, forever and ever. At the final judgment, God gets the last word, and the Antichrist is done for. And Jesus' reign is forever. With the Antichrist slain, the kingdom of God arrives in completeness. That's the end. That's the picture we get, the hope we have. The everlasting reign of Jesus goes on, and all those that believe in him are included in his reign. What a wild vision. What a, what a night's sleep, right? I mean, it's, what a, it's a crazy peak at the end of history. I'm not sure if I would have gone back to sleep for days, right? Uh, and see, that's the end. That's the end of the story, right? We got a peak at the end. We know how the story ends. Because of that, no matter what we face, we know the end. The end is set. Jesus will prevail. God will win. Evil gets, it's, it finds its demise. This, this is hope. This is secure hope. We know it turns out okay in the end. Along the way, there will be hardship. There will be persecution. There will be hard the challenges. We may not live to see the end, but we can faithfully serve the one who wins in the end. We can faithfully serve and love the God who wins. We're on the winning team, right? This is what apocalyptic literature does for us. It gives us long-term perspective for the short-term hardships we endure, right? Apocalyptic literature gives us long-term perspective so we can deal with the hard things in our lives today. For Daniel and his fellow Israelites, they had real hardships as they sat in captivity. They wrestled with being in a foreign land, ripped from their homes and enslaved in Babylon. With that came anguish, weeping, confusion, disillusionment, Sure, abandoning of faith. The opening of, of Psalm 137, it gives us a poetic glimpse at what they felt. Picture it. They say, it says, By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. We remembered home. By the waters we sat down and wept. In captivity, they longed to return to God and be ruled by him once again, to return to their homes. See, there's a longing in all of us, in all of creation for the return of Christ, a longing to be home again. It's in all individuals. It's in all creation. We long for the perfect kingdom of God to be here in its fullness, for the reign of sin to end and for evil to be silenced for good. For 2,000 years, we join with believers who have waited for the return of Christ, for the final scene to take place. For over half a century, Israel awaited 
in exile and oppression for Jesus' first coming, for the beginning of the coming of the Son of Man. In both eras, both periods of time, God's people have looked to God's revealed truth that he's the one who wins in the end. And it's carried them through. It's given us hope. No matter what we face, God wins in the end. We know the end of the story. And that gives us hope. That carries me through. See, God revealed to Daniel to give him and Israel hope as they wept by the rivers of Babylon. God preserved that truth for us today to give us hope in the midst of pandemic uncertainty, looming global war, and uncertain economic times. world can feel like chaos. It can feel in crisis. And so Daniel's vision gives us hope in crisis. A final judgment is coming in which God will destroy the Antichrist. Evil will be put to death. God will give his everlasting kingdom to Jesus, the divine son of man who comes on the clouds. And God's people will reign with him forever, forever and ever. The end of the story end of the story is that evil is silenced and Jesus reigns. Jesus wins. If you remember nothing else from the book of Daniel, if you remember nothing else from these past six weeks, remember God is in control. God wins in the end. Remember God eliminates evil and Jesus will reign forever. Let that fill you with hope. Let that carry you forward. In light of that, no matter what evil we face, whatever hardships are in our lives, we can cling to Jesus. We can find our hope in Jesus. He is the one that defeats evil once and for all. So let's find our hope in Jesus. Will you pray with me?